It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm quite excited. Yeah, me too. I've got my Advent calendar. Ah, what is your Advent calendar? Well, it's like an Advent calendar, only instead of counting down to Christmas, it counts down to the day that your book is released. Ah, good idea. And it's less than three weeks now. I know. Exciting. And talking of exciting, our listeners above all are the people who made it possible because the book would never have happened without this podcast and it's the listeners who've sustained this podcast. And so we have a special once-in-a-lifetime book publication offer for our listeners, which we have negotiated, haven't we? Yes. Now, let me ask you a question. You've never had a job where you've worked in any kind of sales or anything like that, have you? Do you want to, are you going to grade me on how I do this? Well, I'm just thinking, I don't know if QVC is as big a thing as it used to be, but if you did a really good job of it, maybe, uh, you know, a a part-time job at QVC on the shopping channel could be a thing. Also, I saw that clip of you with uh, Nick Ferrari a while ago, where you were selling the electric cars policy, and you were being honest Ed, the car salesman. So there is some precedent here isn't okay so i I would like to rate your skills as a as a book salesman here okay here we go so we've managed to negotiate a special discount for our listeners if you pre-order the book go big how to fix our world by me if you pre-order the book from the waterstones website and use the code cheerful you'll get 30 percent off the full price it's valid until the end of the second of june that's the day before it comes out gives people more than a couple of weeks to get there uh, orders in, and we'll put the link and the discount code in the description of this episode. Buy it now. So, so basically, what you're saying is, we we know that this this book happened because of our listeners. We know that our listeners feel part of it; they want to get a copy. And these are your top notch, high quality copies of Ed's book. Now, I just want to Definitely. be clear: these aren't water damaged ones, or or nope. ones with typos. And nope. these are these are the actual finished books. Have, have you have you defaced any of these books? 
There are lots of signed copies out there. Yep. So, so that that could be not an that option. not that lots. When I say lots, I mean some. Yeah, not not so many that it would make the book less valuable. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I think this is a, a nice little uh, a nice little deal you've done for our listeners to say thank you. It's a thank you to our listeners. And the thing about the book is it's very much inspired by the podcast. But what I've tried to do is to go deeper into lots of the issues that we've talked about, some new ideas, um, and, and also to draw my own experiences as we try to do on the podcast. So, you know, I really hope people enjoy it. Which other podcasts are you going to go on then? Uh, I hate to tell you this, but probably Runciman. Runciman. Podcasts are big news again this week. Did you see that Prince Harry has gone on a, an American podcast called the the Armchair Expert? Oh, really? No, I didn't. Yeah, it's just this huge. It's kind of like a broy interview podcast, a bit like us. But yeah, we have a very broish bromance, and it, it made me think. You know, if we if we were really going fantasy guest, huge name, anybody yeah. anybody you could yeah. pick, who who would yeah. you want on this podcast? Obama be good wouldn't it either obama yeah sasha malia yeah well i was thinking michelle or barack but, yeah but you know what about taylor swift yeah taylor swift would be good you could tell her about your newfound fandom i'd quite like to have us to have paul mccartney on mm. do you know he just did jesse ware's podcast this week oh, i'm doing jesse ware's podcast actually nice are they gonna, gonna uh, cook for you i uh, hopefully yeah um, I'm sure I'm preempting what they're going to ask you on the podcast, but what is the taste of childhood to you? Maybe a hamburger, right? Is that from your time in America? Well, oddly enough, my dad, who never really cooked at all, the one thing he did learn to do was to make hamburgers. Aha! Uh-huh. He used to make his special hamburgers. I mean, they weren't special, but they were hamburgers made by him. Ralph's Burgers. Actually, you know, it's so funny. When I, I don't know whether I've told you this, but. I lived in America with my dad when I was 12 um, because he was teaching there every three, for three months every year. And um, he was not much of a cook. And I think he got better. But So it was just him and me. And we used to have um, spaghetti and, and uh, tomato sauce out of the tin, right? We were there for three and a half months. And just before the end, I was looking at the tomato sauce tin. And I said, Dad, you know what? I think you're supposed to warm up this sauce before you eat it. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, you're right. <laughs> it was a sort of revelation to both of us. Oh, that's great. So so not a gastronomic family then, it's safe mm, to say. He absolutely did his best. But uh, yeah, it was sort of... Mm. Well, look how you've come on in leaps and bounds with your uh, your various attempts at cookery. Exactly. Should we talk about what we're talking about? Yes. This week, we're talking about how to build fairer local economies. Just over three years ago, we spoke to Preston councillor Matthew Brown about what became known as the Preston model. After a proposed redevelopment project was scrapped back in 2011, Preston Council adopted a strategy of community wealth building, also featured, by the way, in the book, encouraging local employers to pay the living wage, using public sector procurement to buy more from local businesses and supporting the development of worker-owned co-ops. It's been a huge success and there's been a lot of interest in Preston's story over the last few years as local leaders and devolved administrations across the UK have begun to adopt a similar approach. Matthew is now leader of Preston City Council and has just written a book about Preston's story. We're going to be talking to him about what has happened since uh, and what other areas can learn from Preston's experience. 
Then we're turning to a really exciting development in this agenda, the growth of community banking and talking to Tony Greenham from Southwest Mutual, one of a new generation of regional mutual banks. And then finally, Antonia Jennings from the Centre for Local Economic Strategies about where the community wealth building movement is up to more widely. And we've got a great cheerful person for you this week. As you all know, if you've spent any time in the podcast, Ed and I are huge converts to citizens' assemblies and sortition and deliberative democracy. And there is a new film, a documentary film on the BBC iPlayer called The People vs. Climate Change, which... Uh, it's great. It's, it's so great. good. It's it, it documents the climate assembly from last year, and we've got one of the participants, and I would say stars of this film. Um, you should watch it. It's on iPlayer now. It's just fantastic. Her name is Sue Peachy, and she'll be coming on to tell us about her experience and her newfound fame. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is that we are now electric car drivers in wow. the band household yes um i was up and down to doncaster in my electric car um to to, to hartlepool uh, there's some things i'm discovering which is what and the single most important thing i'm discovering is there is a solidaristic community of people trying to use some of these bloody charging points <laughs> uh, and it's absolutely it is brilliant you know the plugging in is great when you find a charging point but i'm definitely getting into the swing of it what's your reason to be cheerful do you remember i think you met him there is a guy i have known for years i used to know him when he worked in television and he's ended up as the chief executive of the english national opera he's called Stuart murphy Yes, and I've met him. You bumped into him on, on one of your walks one I day, did. didn't you? Yeah, and he's he's a, he's a lovely man, and he's gone into this institution, which, I mean, I, I know nothing about. I just assume that opera's for posh people. And he's really done this amazing job over the past few years of opening it up. And they've done something incredible this week. So they've managed to secure funding from the Arts Council and the DCMS, and they are giving completely free tickets to everyone under 21 in the country. Every single night there's a performance at the ENO. Um, not just on weekends. They're also not just going to be rubbish seats. They're going to be, you know, from the balcony to the most expensive ones in the stall. And I, I don't even understand it, but just anything that people are doing to make things not elitist and open to everyone, I think it's incredible. And the, the, the way that he's going about making it accessible, I just thought he wrote me an email to tell me about it. And I thought, what a brilliant thing that you're doing. That is a totally brilliant thing. I was actually trying to think if you were a sort of operatic character, what would you, I don't think I might, not opera knowledge is quite strong mm. enough. Mine you... either, really. I mean, no. What about I could I could see myself with a Viking helmet on quite easily. I could see you with a Viking helmet on, yeah. definitely. How about you? My opera knowledge is sort of. Mm. Oh, I know which one it is because we we touched on it the other week. Yeah, whichever one that the just one cornetto music is from, because I could really imagine you as a gondolier. Oh. Well, thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To get us started on the subject of community wealth building, we are going to welcome back uh, a, a former guest, one of the people really leading the way on this. It's leader of Preston City Council and co-author of Paint Your Town Red, How Preston Took Back Control and Your Town Can Too. Matthew Brown, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to see you both again. 
Well, the last, last time we saw you, I think, was on stage in, in Liverpool, wasn't it? Feels like a long time ago, Jeff. It really does. It really does. As I was saying before we turned on the microphone, we are big Matthew Brownites on this on this podcast, aren't we, Jeff? Yeah, there's no plot to force out Brown on this no, podcast. No, we're complete Brownites. Yes. I mean, we like to think that everybody who listens to this podcast commits every single thing ever said to memory, but... Just in they do, case, they do. Just in case some of our listeners uh, don't remember that episode from uh, from from three years ago, can you remind us of the story of the Preston model and what, in your case, that community wealth building involves? Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of it's about very sensible things, making sure the council and big institutions buys local and hires local. A lot of it's about trying to say to the institutions, you know, pay the real living wage, try to buy a lot more from uh, small firms instead of big corporations, try to invest locally. That's what's happened so far. But we're now onto the more kind of radical, transformative side of it when we're looking at, you know, who owns the stuff in the local economy. So, you know, worker co-ops, our own bank within the region, building something that the city owns instead of outside investors. So it's trying to put layers of democracy in the local economy, really, so everyone shares in the success of it. And can you tell us a bit about how that works and why it's important, this idea of community wealth building? Like how, how would you sell it to me if I was a voter in Preston? How did you sell it? Because you were quite successful at the recent elections, so you should tell us how you sold it. I think, well, I mean, I'm probably speaking in quite political language, but, I, you know, we, we just say it in very common sense terms, really, that we want to support local people and local businesses. And we want to find ways that people have more control over their lives economically. So that's the way that we do sell it. And we had some pledges in the last local elections. So, you know, it's like we'll establish a bank, we'll encourage the living wage, we'll get big institutions to buy more locally. You know, it's all putting that together and it has resonated to a degree in Preston because obviously we did quite well in the elections. So, yeah, it does really matter because, in my opinion, the structural inequalities that we've seen through austerity, the financial crash, you know, Thatcherism and, you know, the consequences after that, it's really exposed the inequalities during the pandemic. So as we start rebuild after the pandemic, I think it's really important that we make sure we have a bit, bit more of a radical uh, local economic agenda where people can benefit from it. What's the thing people in Preston would be most conscious of, you know, of, in this community wealth building thing? Is it the li- the living wage, people being paid the living wage? Is it is it the sort of in reinvesting money in Preston? What would be the thing that people are most cognizant of? It's probably most telling with city centre regeneration that we did work with quite large global developers and try to wait for them to come in. But we've done it ourselves, you know, with the city council, the county council, the university, you know, to rebuild the city and make sure that, you know, it's all done publicly, it's done collaboratively. But, you know, let's get local people involved in these projects. In in terms of the living wage, the council pays it, but also other big institutions. So it's happening in different areas through what the council does directly but how they influence so it's not all happening at the time the same time it's happening in uh, with different institutions so our university for example in april they uh, decided to raise wages to nine pound fifty an hour and the people who receive the the living wage increase they're not always aware it's a political strategy so obviously we've got to make sure we keep getting the message out positively tell us tell us about some of the other projects uh um intrigued by the municipally owned cinema complex 
Yes, again, we if we don't do it ourselves, nobody else is going to do it. So this will be a £40 million cinema, and it's going to be owned by the council. Obviously, within that, we're looking at local suppliers and local labour as far as we can through a community benefit agreement. Uh, we're looking if we can get cooperatives in the supply chain as well. So these are firms actually owned by the people who work within it. But also, you know, we can then decide the environmental standards it's built to, but also the profits, if it makes any, which we, we think it will do, will then go back to the city. So that can be reinvested in the community. You mentioned your plans for, um, for a, a mutual bank. Tell us a bit more about that. There's a number of these uh, regional cooperative banks. Ours is called the Northwest Mutuals. So this will be one member, one vote. It's been registered with the Financial Conduct Authority. And crucially, what we see in all our communities is, you know, large banks withdrawing from the high street. So, you know, this will actually reopen branches on the high street. And we've never had regional cooperative banks in the UK. So if you go to places like Germany, what you see is a really vibrant small business space because you've got not-for-profit banking. But it's so exciting because there's a Welsh version of it now. There's one in Bristol area and there's one in the southwest. And, uh, you know, it's something we can do now. Obviously, I want a Labour government as soon as we can and Ed is the business secretary. But, you know, in the meantime, we can do a bit of this stuff now. And tell us what provoked you to write the book. I mean, there's obviously been lots of focus on Preston and what you've been doing. And you started off in the cabinet position, then you became leader but 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 what what gave you the idea of writing the book i thought i wanted to you know really put the record straight because there's been lots of interest in what we're doing because it's a bit different and a lot of it gets misreported so i mean it was Rian actually wrote most of it because i do have precious little time these days but uh, i just wanted to make sure we got the record straight to be honest and also then linked to the other things that are happening in newham in wirral uh, in north Ayrshire around community wealth building and tell us where you're most excited about your plans in Preston going next, because as I say, you've had these recent elections. What's the kind of twinkle in your eye? Is it the banking? Is it other things that you've got that you're planning? I think it's all of them put together, Ed, to be honest, because we're, we're reaching a tipping point now where, you know, we've got four new worker co-ops incubated, food, digital our taxi drivers are organised in a worker cooperative. We've got an education centre. But we're looking at former prisoners, renewable energy, cleaning, social care, construction. And then you link that with a bank as well that could potentially lend to businesses like that. It is quite revolutionary. And the fact the community are really getting behind it now. I mean, when we started this a few years ago, I mean, it was really hard to actually get into the community and explain these concepts and say, well, this is a fantastic set of ideas. It's going to benefit you all. But now we're pretty much there, really. So it does take time. But, you know, we just want to spread the uh, the good news and make sure other places do it because I think people need a chance to have something a bit better locally because, you know, we can wait for big businesses to come in. But I think that that has failed in many ways. And it's about trying to take control of your own community in many ways so everyone benefits. Last question from me. As you sort of go about your work, what do you find is the biggest barrier to, because you're, you know, I think it's fair to say you're a, a real visionary, Matthew, um, and you're doing amazing things. What do you find is the biggest barrier to your success and progress? I mean, is it central government? Is it people's imagination? Is it sort of national political will? What what What's the thing that sort of makes you gnash your teeth? At first, a lot of it was minds not being open, because you probably know yourself in politics, Ed, you know, there's 
lots of rigidity, people are scared of new ideas, and that's probably a lot worse at a local level than a national level. Uh, so there was that barrier. There was a bit of a resistance to it as well from some quarters because it was a bit too radical, and they thought it was too radical. And then, you know, as you you said before, you know, the fact that we are the most centralised country in the European Union, it really does hold us back. You know, if you go to Berlin, you can bring the water back into public ownership. Here, we can't do that. So my strategy really is, if you support these alternative institutions, which are commonplace in many European regions, like cooperatives, and having your own bank, then you can't get around that, really. Well, look, Matthew Brown, it is incredibly exciting to talk to you. I think... I think I'm very conscious as we talk to you of the progress that you are making in Preston and, and, and people have noticed both in Britain and elsewhere around the world. Um, we wish you all the best of luck. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Hope to see you again sometime in person. Now, in that discussion with Matthew, obviously, um, we talked about community wealth building, but th- there's a really exciting idea around community banking. And I'm delighted to say that we now have on the line Tony Greenham, who is founder of Southwest Mutual, one of a new generation of regional banks being established across the UK. Tony, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Um, just maybe if you could start by telling us the story behind Southwest Mutual and what, what it involves and, and where the plans are up to. Southwest Mutual, as you said, is, is one of actually a number of initiatives around the country and I suppose the beginnings of this this new wave, but partly at the Royal Society of Arts, where I was director of economics uh, a few years ago, where a number of fellows, uh, with the support of the RSA, started to promote the idea of community banks, regional community banks. And uh, I was working on it then as a as a policy wonk, if you like, looking at the the benefits and why we'd want to have them. And there just came a point where I thought. Actually, do you know what? Why don't I actually try and start it myself? And so, um, so I got a group together down in the southwest, and Southwest Mutual started off. Tell us what's different about a regional mutual bank from your average high street bank. Well, I always like to think that it's three things. That is, that we're a purpose-led bank. Profits, you know, shareholder value is not the primary motivator, and our purpose is the sustainable and. Uh, inclusive prosperity in the southwest of England. So we're purpose-driven. Now, there are other ethical banks and purpose-driven financial institutions. However, we're also regional, so being uh, a specialist and focusing in a particular part of the country uh, is unusual in the UK, and we haven't had regional banks for such a long time. And then the third element of it, of course, is that we are mutual, and that means that we're owned and controlled by our customers, by our members, one member, one vote. And the combination of those three things as a bank uh, will be a first in the UK. And wh- where are you up to in terms of the the plans? Can we, you know, how soon can we kind of get loans and you know do business with the bank? How where, where is that getting up to? How's it being financed? Well, it's it's a long and arduous process to start a bank, which is which is uh, which is only right and proper, really. It's also a little bit more difficult when it's a new model. So, so this is a pioneering model. And so there's, there's more novelty for the regulators and for us indeed to, to work through all the details of about how everything's going to work in practice. So the short answer is, I'm afraid, not anytime soon, but we are aiming to open uh, to, so you can open your account in a couple of years time. Is it going to be only for people in the southwest? Is it for businesses and, um, you know, per- personal customers? How's that all going to work? 
Well, it's personal and business with a focus on small yeah. business and also social enterprises, community enterprises, you know, a sector that isn't very well served, we, we don't think. Uh, I mean, our purpose is really about supporting um, the economic prosperity and sustainability and inclusion in the southwest of England. And why that's important is because without these sort of strong regional financial institutions, uh, it's very hard to achieve a more equal economy, which is a perennial problem in, in, in British you know, economy, is, is the huge inequalities between regions. One of the reasons why we have those inequalities is we don't have strong regional banks. And how will you capitalise your bank? Well, it's going to take uh, tens of millions. Uh, you can't start a bank uh, for much less than that, really. And so far, we've attracted startup capital from three different sources, uh, which is great. You know, we've had some investment from local authorities uh, in Devon. We've also had uh, private individuals in the area have put money in, and that's because they tend to be business people who are attracted to the idea of reinvesting back in, in the place where they live and making it more prosperous. And then we've also had some social foundations uh, putting in capital because they recognise the, the sort of social impact that we're aiming to have. Tell us what countries that have a strong tradition of regional banking exist and what we can learn from them. Well, it's not really exaggerating to say almost anywhere else in the world uh, other than here. Um, although, although, of course, we did have a tradition of, of, of regional banking here and indeed um, more social banks, like the trust, original trustee savings banks, and we've lost all of that. So in a sense, we're trying to rebuild something that, uh, and in terms of mutuality, you know, you could argue is sort of partly invented in this country and we've somehow thrown out of the window. So we're trying to bring that back. We can learn from good models overseas. So the US and Canada uh, have lots of community banks and credit unions that are much more of the scale that we're aiming to be, you know, much larger regional uh, cooperative banks. But also a lot of European countries, Germany is quite well known for having both local savings banks uh, that are public as well as cooperative banks. I'm thinking of George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. Is that is that the type of thing? Uh, there's a famous scene there where, where there's the run on, run on the bank. That's, that's, what, I'm, that's, what, I'm, that's what I'm yeah. thinking of. All the members of the community coming in, they're worried that their savings are, are, are going to be in jeopardy and he reassures them all from his honeymoon uh, savings. Well, it doesn't, well, it's not just that he reassures them. So, you know, it's that sort of great personal commitment, I suppose, to the community. But there's this great scene where he explains that the interdependence everybody has. So, you know, he says, well, but your savings are in the bank and, and that's helping, you know, this guy over here to own a home and, and get escape the slum landlord. Uh, and that mutuality, so it emphasises the mutuality, uh, which actually is quite core to finance. And it's really important to recreate and strengthen those bonds uh, that tie us together in the economy. And that's what mutual institutions do. But so more, more broadly, it is about this idea of the, the wealth for the community that the, that the, the bank generates. Well, yes, it, that, that happens in a couple of ways. I mean, as a mutual, we will pay... a. a a decent financial return to our shareholders because they will provide our capital to start the bank. But it's not, the bank isn't all orientated towards maximising their returns. So also any surplus profits can get ploughed back into you know, the membership and the community. Uh, and there's also the sense that what you don't have the choice of right now in this country, it, you know, if you, let's say that you're in Devon, but we could be talking about anywhere in the country really. And you say, well, what, I really want my savings to be working hard for the community where I am. You know, where can you put them? 
that does that. I mean, there isn't really an option. So, so what we want is for those that want to feel that they're reinvesting back in where they live, then they know that that's how their money's going to get used. I mean, there's something interesting in that, in that the, the, the appetite is there, but you talked about the, um, you know, the, the procedure that somebody has to go through to start a bank. Are, are there other things the government could be doing to make it easier for people to, to set up community banking? Yeah, without doubt. I mean, one of the challenges that we face is that the other forms of mutual that, of course, we do have in this country, being building societies and smaller scale credit unions, um, particularly in the case of building societies, they've been around a long time. You know, they, they date from an era where it was much easier and simpler to set up a new financial institution. We're trying to establish it now. And, and it's a much higher bar. And that's, I mean, that's not necessarily wrong. Those regulations are there for good reason. But it means you've got to start from day one at quite a scale. Now, when the whole point about a mutual is that you patiently accumulate your reserves through trading with your members over time, we're in a catch-22. Because we can't just gather that capital from the members because we can't get any members until we've got the capital. <laughs> so there is a gap there for patient capital for new mutuals. And what's the fix for that then? You know, we believe that um, the dormant assets funds, uh, of of which more will be made available, uh, could be a very appropriate source of funding to help to capitalise new mutuals. So is that like when I had three quid in my NatWest account when I was a kid because I wanted to collect piggy banks and then uh, never never remembered to withdraw it? It's just been sat there ever since. It's worth three million now, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) Great, I'm going to use it to capitalise the bank. You're right, it is It is those uh, dormant accounts that people have forgotten and the banks uh, make every possible effort to locate the owners of these assets and there comes a point where they, they sort of are, are available for public purposes and you know, we think that that could help capitalise mutual banks. So you know, th- there are things that government could certainly do that would accelerate and, you know, uh, improve our sort of impact and and get us there quicker and hopefully scale up quicker. Well, look, Tony Green, it's really inspiring uh, to talk to you. It sounds like a brilliant initiative you're taking. uh, And we look forward to Southwest Mutual getting up and running. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to be on the show. Well, having been inspired by what's happening in Preston and the plans for Southwest Mutual, uh, we're going to try and get a sense of what is happening more broadly from the Associate Director of the Centre for Local Economic Strategies, Antonia Jennings. Hello. Hi, nice to be here. Well, thanks thanks for coming on. And um, can, can you remind me, we have talked uh, to uh, to your colleagues at CLES before, but can, can you remind me and the listeners what it is that you do at CLES? Sure. So CLES is uh, the Centre for Local Economic Strategies and we say we're the National Organisation for Local Economies. Um, We're a think tank, but we're also a do tank. Uh, So we do traditional think tank work. So that's research and policy work. But uh, the bulk of our activity is actually advancing um, the implementation of policy and practice on the ground. So our focus um, is away from Westminster and towards local economies. So we work with local authorities, councils, the devolved administrations in Wales and Scotland. We work with them to try and create local economies that work for people, place and the planet. One of the main agendas that we focus on is, of course, community wealth building, which we would say is a people-centred approach to economic development. And it really works to ensure that wealth generated within a community stays within that community. And in, in terms of the idea of community wealth building, which, is, as you say, is, is there on your agenda, where is it up to on the 
country's agenda? Where were we? Where are we? And what's the direction of travel? It's spreading rapidly. We've seen community wealth building adopted in localities in all nations of the UK. Of course, Preston remains the most famous community wealth building council, but we've seen both the SNP and Scottish Labour put community wealth building in their manifesto. Uh, The SNP is now looking to introduce a community wealth building act. We've seen localities in London adopt it and the GLA as a whole. Um, And then really across the country, we've got councils in the Wirral, Birmingham, Lewis. So it's spreading rapidly. Looking at its popularity, in short, I'm sure Matthew talked about this uh, with you, but the results of last week showed basically that where a community wealth building platform was stood on, the results tended to buck the trend of the results for progressives overall. And then thirdly, I guess, I think you should look at the depth because community wealth building is a really broad economic agenda. And by depth, I mean, how holistically or comprehensively is it being adopted? And at Clare's, we've worked with virtually all of the localities um, that have adopted community wealth building. And we've really seen it come a long way in terms of how holistically it's being adopted. And what we've seen, basically a step change, moving community wealth building from something that's siloed as part of economic development through to really being worked on by all departments across the council. And in those nations and regions that you mention, uh, which uh, are adopting it, we've talked a lot about Preston. Have you got any uh, sort of examples of the way it's working in some of those places in, in terms of some of the ideas that are being implemented? Yeah, absolutely. So some of the most exciting and underreported examples in my mind are actually happening in London. Um, you know, as we all know, London, despite being one of the richest cities in the world, it's it's a city ridden by inequalities, right? So we've got health inequality, we've got generational inequalities, we've got a terrible child poverty problem, one in four kids still, still live in poverty in the capital. And so public institutions, both councils um, and on the GLA level, have really been taking these issues into their own hands, particularly in the last year and through COVID. So on a council level, we've seen Newham um, has abandoned GDP as its primary metric for success and now uses health and well-being with really transformative effects. We've seen Lewisham announce the Lewisham deal, which is um, basically a series of initiatives to promote high quality apprenticeships, promoting the living wage, supporting SMEs, etc. But I think what's been another really particular, um, particularly exciting development on a London-wide level is the announcement of something that it sounds quite policy wonky because maybe it is, but it's going to have really great effects. If something oh, called... Ed's, Ed's face is lit up. <laughs> sure. So um, we've just seen in March, actually, so it's a super new initiative. Um, we've just seen something called the London Anchor Institutions Network being launched. And what that is, is it's 18 public institutions from across the city. So that's Transport for London, NHS London, um, the GLA itself, the Met Police and various other large faith organisations come together and commit to using their purchasing power and their recruitment power to make London a better place. And just to give you an indication of the size of that power, collectively, those 18 institutions employ half a million staff. So they employ half a million Londoners and their collective budget is £73 billion. Pounds. Blimey. Yeah, so it's huge. Blimey. It's absolutely huge. And their first priority as a network um, is to address youth unemployment, which is obviously always a very, very important issue, but it's only set to become even more important as, you know, furlough is going to be rolled back in the autumn. And unfortunately, a lot of people are predicting, you know, a spike in 
in youth unemployment. And it's an amazing recognition that the institutions that make up London can have a huge role in improving it. And I just would finish by saying, just think about that £73 billion and half a million staff. If they even redirect, you know, two, five percent of that kind of budget into deprived wards and, you know, direct it towards helping youth unemployment, it could be truly transformative. That is mega. One question which people often ask about community wealth building is, and, and you'll have a really interesting perspective on this at Claire's, is what difference can it really make if central government is either not completely on board or not on board and in the face of sort of big global corporations? To, I mean, talk to because often people will look at, sometimes will look at the state of the world or the country and feel a bit hopeless. Talk to us about what, you know, what are the, what's the extent and limits of the difference that community wealth building can make, in your opinion? That's a really interesting question. And it's a question that I get asked a lot at Claire's. So the first thing I'd say is that global economic forces, they don't exist in a parallel universe. They're the sum of what's happening in each and every community across the world. So I would say that if community wealth building were to be applied globally, it would have a huge effect on global economic forces. But I appreciate we're not there yet. We don't have community uh, community wealth building in every locality across the UK. So I think there's another really critical and important role community wealth building can play in terms of that global impact. Um, And that's a role around generating proof and also uh, generating hope that things can be done differently. And I don't need to tell you but you know many progressives have had a pretty difficult time of it of late and you know disillusionment with uh, politics in all of its forms is not something that's exclusively for the right of politics it's very much amongst the left as well and so what community wealth building can do I would argue is show the world that localities can take issues into their own hands and do a huge amount to alleviate them and this kind of proof of impact of community wealth building should both you know, energise progressives and give them hope of all sorts of, you know, descriptions and in all sorts of ways. But it can also show national governments that community wealth building is a tested, successful concept that should be supported nationally. We have a thing on the podcast called the um, Jeffocracy, Antonia, uh, where Jeff is the supreme ruler and uh, that's a sort of relatively off-putting concept. So, but just sort of bear with us here. Um, Stop putting words into her mouth. <laughs> uh, uh, um, if he were to make you the minister, secretary of state, whatever you really wanted for community wealth building, what do you think? What what would you? What's the sort of? What's the kind of first thing or first things that you would take to him that national government could be doing to enable the kind of vision that you have, at Claire's? As I mentioned earlier, community wealth building is an approach that at Claire's we'd say can be in large part applied in spite of national policy. That being said, of course, the national policy agenda has an impact on a local authority's ability to deliver. We can't, you know, we can't ignore the fact that since 2010, the average local authority has faced cuts of 50%. Um, So what I would say is at the heart of a community wealth building approach is the promotion of economic democracy. um, And that fundamentally involves redistributing wealth and redistributing power and in this country one of the main barriers to that happening is around ownership 
So it's about who owns your high street, who owns your NHS or even um, who owns the companies that are getting NHS contracts, you know, through to who owns your local greengrocers. So I guess if I were in government, the first thing I do would be a complete reset of business and enterprise support and basically redirect it as much as I could towards alternative forms of business with alternative models of ownership, cooperatives, community businesses, social enterprises. Jeff, what do you think? I'm going to be very hands-off in this. I'm I'm very happy to decentralise power here to Antonia. Sounds good to me. It sounds like the, the right thing for you to do. It um, really, you know, it really suits my uh, the, the laziness to abdicate responsibility. If you don't want to be deposed, it's the right thing to do. Well, look, it's incredibly inspiring to talk to you, Antonia. We know that Claes has played a, a really fundamental role in what happened at Preston in this global movement around community wealth building. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks a lot. It was a pleasure. So what did you think? I've said this before. Over the years, different big themes have emerged on this podcast. And one of them is decentralisation. And I really enjoy anything where the prosperity, um, wealth and autonomy of a region isn't tied into uh, whichever party is in national government at the time. So I, I, I think it's great. I was excited by everything we heard. It was great to catch up with Matthew. And um, I really like the idea of mutual community banking not least because of my love of the film it's a wonderful life you know i think what's really interesting about it is sometimes on this podcast we do ideas and you sort of check back in on them and you think you know some things have changed some things have not changed i really felt talking to all our three guests together how much it had evolved i mean you know matthew building on his success tony talking about the banking thing and then antonia you know What's happening in London sounds massive. And it, it is interesting out of this sort of small acorn of what, you know, Preston started, which I think was learnt from Cleveland in the United States. Um, you know, it's quite a big oak tree now. And you do get the sense that this is a movement and it's a movement happening, not led by central government, but sort of but but led by local areas, which has as you say, uh, and and as Matthew said, you know, have just sort of decided they want to, that they're not going to put up with the way things are, and they're going to do something about it. And they're not going to sort of wait. And I think, I do think of all the things that we've covered on the podcast, it's one of the most exciting uh, movements in terms of the way it's it's just, it's got, it's got real capacity to change things. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at Cheerful Podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Our cheerful person this week is one of the people featured in a brilliant new film uh, for the BBC which is very close to our hearts, Ed, because it's about 
uh, a citizens' assembly. It's about sortition. Uh, it's it's fantastic. It's called the People versus Climate Change, and one of those people is Sue Peachy. Hello, Sue. Hello. We're all voting for Sue, basically, Jeff, aren't we? <laughs> having watched yeah. that, having watched that documentary, we are definitely voting for Sue. Oh well, I don't know what you're voting me for, but. Thanks. <laughs> Anything you like. Yeah. Anything you like, Sue. It's so fantastic, the idea to film the, the Climate Assembly. Tell us about it. Tell us about how you became involved. Well, back uh, a long time ago now, in November 2019, um, I got a letter through the post. And on the front of the envelope, was it was from the House of Commons. And I thought... You know, I thought it was a speeding ticket or something like that. You know, I thought, oh, I must have done something really wrong if they're writing to me. Anyway, I opened it up and there was an invitation. I read it all and I thought, oh, this has got to be a hoax. I mean, what's the chances of that? You know, anyway, I went to my friends and um, I asked her if she'd got one. And she said, no, I ain't got one. So she said, well, you've got to put your name for it. She said, what's the chance of you getting picked? <laughs> So, and the rest is history. So I put my name forward um, and thought, I always like to do things I've never done before. So uh, why not? And how much of an idea of what you were letting yourself in for did you have from from the letter? Uh, well, not a lot, really. It just said that you had that you needed to be available for four weekends uh, from Friday night till Sunday afternoon. And, you know, I had nothing particular to do, so... Um, I was quite happy to give me time. Um, so uh, that was all that... And obviously it was to do with climate change. Um, in readiness, I did watch a couple of documentaries about climate change because um, it wasn't the sort of thing that I would normally watch. Tell us a bit more then about the journey you've been on since the Assembly. So if that wasn't the, the subject you wanted to know most about beforehand, how have you changed since the Assembly? Well, I suppose it's because I didn't know anything um, much about climate change. And obviously, we had a really quick um, unveiling of everything to do with climate change over the first day that we were up in Birmingham. And when you see all the science and all the scientists telling you the stuff and you see the, you know, the pictures and you see all the graphs and everything, um, you know, it's... It's obvious that there is a real thing and that things need to be done to change it. And if you had to say to the sort of Sue who hadn't been to the Climate Assembly why why she should be concerned given what you've learnt in the Climate Assembly, what do you what's the thing that most stuck with you from that that made you think actually uh, you know this needs to be taken more seriously than I realised originally? What's happened the last fifty years? I know we, we, you know, technology is great and everything, but the way that we've been living our lives is is making our planet die. In effect, you know, we're everybody's noticing the change in weathers and, you know, the heat, the rain, you know, the winds. Everything's changing, and um, we're to blame for that. And we can actually do something about it. But it's gonna. It probably isn't gonna benefit me, and I, I, I didn't actually go and do that because I want to make a better place for myself. I want to make a better place for the future generations that are coming forward. You know, for the kids of today. I mean, what what sort of legacy are we gonna give them? We we've talked about these citizen assemblies in the past, Sue, and 
we've both been struck by the fact that if you just give people information, they'll come up with a, a good solution. You know, you, got, you put your trust, trust in people and they won't disappoint you. Was that your experience with this, with this group of people? Was, was yeah, definitely. Backgrounds maybe you wouldn't normally mix with? Yeah, absolutely. There was, I think the age group was 16 to 80. Um, there was lots of different people from all over the UK. Ireland, Scotland, Cornwall, London, everywhere you could think of, there were people from that. And, and we got to move round and, and mix with different people on different tables um, throughout the process. Um, but the, the one thing that we all pretty much agreed on, it, the, one of the very first things and principles that we agreed on was education. Because people needed to hear what we've heard um, I know they can't do a climate assembly and they can't listen to all that. But, you know, I mean, and I champion and I still champion the fact that we should be bringing back public information ads like we had in the 70s. Um, oh, yeah. You know, and <clears throat> back in the 70s, I'm sure Ed would probably remember, it was all about, the, you know, the... Um, the Cold War, and we used to get these little pamphlets come through the door to say what to do in the event of a nuclear attack. Cling film on your windows. Yeah, exactly, and put a mattress up against the doors and all that sort of thing, you know. <laughs> Don't fly your kite by the power lines. Yeah, that's it. you got it. But, I mean, short little videos like that. <clears throat> I mean, there we are talking about it 40, 50 years later. It's all right getting people and asking people to change, but you've got to explain why you want them to change. You haven't just gone to the climate assembly and done all of that. You've since then you've um, joined the parish council. But t- tell yeah. us, tell us, tell us a bit more generally about how have you changed what you're doing since the assembly, and then right. and then a bit about the parish council. The first thing I did because um, we were put into groups when we were doing the assembly, and I was on the transport group. And in between weekends, I thought I'd just do a little bit of homework about electric cars. So um, I, I looked and I thought, oh, yeah, that's something that, you know, I, I would like. So I then found a, a garage that's specialised in second-hand electric vehicles. And that's all they sold. And I just went there one day to try and find out some information. And I ended up buying one. <laughs> And what else have you got involved in? You've obviously, as I say, got involved in the parish council. Yeah, well, when we were on the the last weekend, we were all together up in uh, Birmingham, quite a few of us um, in the bar one night. (laughs) We were all sort of saying that, it's you know, we've got all this knowledge. It's, it's, It's a shame that we can't do something with it. And, you know, we all thought it'd be good to get into some sort of job that where, you know, so that we could sort of continue with our you know, beliefs and sort of helping people and supporting people. A couple of months later, I saw my uh, local parish council were advertising for councillors. So I thought, well, that's one way that I can maybe get involved in the community and, you know, support um, them and encourage them to to change things for a greener future locally. Tell us where you live. Whereabouts in the country do you live, Sue? I, I live uh, just on the outskirts in a small village outside Bath. Well, it's in Bath, but it's called Bath Eastern, so it's on the eastern side of Bath. And what's the thing you most want to champion for your local well, area, do you think? The thing is, I think we need to look. It's not instant. Things are not going to be instant that we're going to change, but we've got to, we've got to look to the future um, because a lot of the houses where I live, 
none of them have got off-road parking so um there needs to be you know like a electric charging hub or, or or something um in the community for people to encourage local people to buy electric vehicles um the nearest charge point is probably about a couple of miles away at the local morrison's shop but they've only got the one for that particular like for my car so you know you can understand why people are not going to convert to electric when it's so difficult to exactly. you know charge exactly and Jeff, think, I think, said earlier that we're great enthusiasts for the, you know, the kind of thing that was done at the climate assembly. The peop- ordinary people, kind of, de- you know, deliberating together, coming up with conclusions. Would you like to see more of that kind of thing? The th- kind of thing you did at the climate assembly happening I- for other things? Yeah, because um, at the end of the day, like I said, we don't want to be told what to do without an explanation. I think the more people that you get involved that are everyday normal people that are going to be living the lives that you're going to be asking them to do, um, you're going to get a, a more balanced view of what is going to be acceptable, what people are put up with, what people are going to be willing to do. And the only way you're going to do that is by asking the people that are living the lives that you're expecting to change. So the the film, uh, the documentary of the Climate Assembly, um, The People Versus Climate Change, is on BBC iPlayer now. How has it been seeing yourself through the eyes of TV directors and producers? Um, I laughed, to be honest. I mean, I thought, well, they've got me in a category, I suppose you could say I'm the overweight alcoholic. Of the, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is not, well, the, the overweight bit is, but uh, not the alcoholic. I know I've got a bar in my garden, but I don't use it all the time. <laughs> I mean, when I first actually saw the documentary, when I got to see it a few weeks ago, um, I even made myself laugh. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I did this for a reason, for people to take notice and make make changes in their life and hopefully them seeing somebody like me making the changes. I mean, I'm not perfect, do you know what I mean? But I've done what I can. Well, look, Sue Peachy, the documentary is a brilliant. You are brilliant in the documentary. Um, you're, it's an incredibly inspiring story about what you know the kind of thing the Climate Assembly did can do, and you're incredibly inspiring. Sue Peachy, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're in the outro. Ooh. We should remind you that uh, we love hearing from you. If you have ideas for future podcasts, if you have thoughts on what you've heard, uh, then then we love hearing from you. Definitely. Anything, really. Uh, it's, uh, you can do so through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. Now, I wanted to tell you about something and then ask your advice. My son has become extremely interested in dogs. He wants to get one, which is something Aww. I am open to at some point. It's not quite on the uh, agenda yet. But the the breed of dog he wants is a Great Dane. My God. Then then I remembered, oh, you had that imaginary dog for a while. Chutney, yeah. And do, do you think I could sell him on the idea of an imaginary Great Dane? What would you call the imaginary Great Dane? Well, who who is a Great Dane? What about Pilo Asbeck? Well, what? He was the actor who played the spin doctor in Borgen. Mm. He's the first be. Danish person that sprung to mind. Well, it's also imagine trying to call the 
dog bat, you know, if you're in the park. I mean, it is invisible, so I probably wouldn't be doing as much of that. It did, did lead me to wonder, um, yeah. what, what happened to Chutney? Uh, he, he, he's, he's, um, he's around. You didn't have him sent away to live on an imaginary farm, did you? I, I do agree with you that Chutney has sort of faded out a little bit. I think, I think we sort of, we all got slightly bored with the, well, it just shows you a pet is not just for Christmas, it's for life. But, you know, um, it's a good job we hadn't bought one. You know, we got, all got slightly sort of, I think, I think that the idea lost, slightly lost its luster. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to have to sort of reheat Chutney, so to speak. <laughs> should we thank our guests? We should. I'd like to thank our guests, Matthew Brown, Tony Greenham and Antonia Jennings. And thanks to the wonderful Sue Peachy. Do watch that film on BBC iPlayer, uh, The People vs. Climate Change. It's just great. Emma Corsham produces our podcast. Her production is second to none. Uh, all the research and guest booking and clever thinking that goes into it is done by the mind of Joel Pierce, who is uh, backed up by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. And we say hello. Hello. At left Foot Forward. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been electric. He's looking for a great Dane. And these have been... <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful. <laughs>